Well, I'm, uh, I'm uh, uh, struggling a little bit in my mind because we listen to a little bit of uh, Colin Buchanan at home. Many of you will know him, and he's got a song on Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. And it says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never end. His love is new every morning, new every morning, great is faithfulness. So I think there's a bit of explanation that needs to be had with why the ESV and the NIV uh, depart so radically on that verse. I'm looking forward to hearing of that. Now, as Deb's already mentioned, uh, this weekend before Easter is often referred to as Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday reminds us that at this time, over 2,000 years ago, Christ set his face toward Jerusalem. He had resolved to go there to finish the work that he had come to do. He lived his life in the shadow of that hour. And as Deb mentioned, as he approached the city, the people shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And so today we are reminded that in less than a week from now, we will gather here again in this place to remember that great day when Jesus died. And I think this means appropriately that this service will be a little more somber in its nature as we prepare our hearts to engage with the reality of the cross and the cost to our Saviour. And so let us pray. Father God Almighty, we pray that as we consider your Son today in the Garden of Gethsemane, that you allow us to enter into that place with not only our minds, Lord, but also our hearts. Allow us, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit to get a glimpse of what it would cost the Son to drink of the cup that you had prepared for him. Be with us this very day, Lord, as we hear your word. Use it to strengthen our hearts and to motivate us because of your grace that lives in us, that is there for us. Help us, Lord, to bring honor to your name and to testify to the power that is in your gospel in the way that we live and the words that we speak. We ask all of these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. My name is Jordan, and I am the youth pastor here at Subi Church, and uh, it is my great honor and privilege to be up here to bring God's word uh, before you today. Um, I'd like to start uh, with this. Uh, In his book, uh, The View from a Hearse, a Christian man uh, named Joe Bailey writes about his experience of grief and of comfort with the loss of three of his sons. And he says this in his book, I was sitting torn by grief, and someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things that I knew were true, but I was unmoved except to wish that he would go away, and he finally did. Another came and sat beside me, and he didn't talk. He didn't ask me leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more. He listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved, I was comforted, and I hated to see him go. Now, I think this is a great illustration of how Christians ought to listen and to love one another, but I would like to draw a slightly different point from it. And the point is this, that when the emotion of things are treated merely as an exercise for the mind or the intellect, something is missed. And so instead, when the emotion is understood, uh, then and only then can our hearts and our actions respond appropriately. 
think this is the same of anything. If you go to a birthday party or someone invites you to a party and you refuse their hospitality, I don't want anything to drink, I don't want anything to eat, you're not actually connecting, you're missing something of the appropriateness and the emotion uh, of that place. Now, in my, the small group that I am a part of, we are currently working through the Psalms. And we see in the Psalms the entire palette of human emotion, I think. And I never read the Psalms and feel like they are shallow or unauthentic. Now, the point is this, that when we come to the Scriptures, when we read our Bibles... There is as much an exercise for the heart there as there is for the mind. And I think that it is wrong to think that just because you were doing one, you were doing the other. Now, why do I say all of this? Because if there was ever a day or a week to consider and understand the emotion of what is happening, especially in the text of Scripture, I think it is these time leading up to Easter and especially um, over Easter. Otherwise, you will miss something. And so today, I will try to reach for the heart of the matter, but you must look for it also. And so that is the challenge for each of you uh, today. And so with this in our minds, I will now ask you all to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Our reading today will be from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 26, verse 36 to 56. Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going just a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, My father... If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not what as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for just one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent by the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one that I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached out for his sword, drew it, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say that it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out 
to me with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all of his disciples deserted him and fled. You may be seated. Now we will not get through uh, all of this text today, and I, and I don't plan to. Instead, what we will focus on uh, is the sorrow and the agony of Christ. We will interact with the question, why here in Gethsemane is Christ this way, this distressed? In some sense, this sermon is more of a, a devotion, a meditation on that question. Now, there is much mystery here in Gethsemane. I think we can all recognize that. What did the son know about what he would face, about what he would go through? Where do we see the judgment of God falling upon the son? Where? What moment? When leading up to the cross? Is it enough to see God's judgment satisfied with just the physical pain and physical death of the son? Or is it something more? Did the hope of the resurrection or the certainty of it make the atonement easy for God or more bearable for the son? Why is Jesus so strong throughout his trial and death and in such agony here in the garden? See, these are all tough questions. They're interesting questions that maintain a level of mystery here. And I say mystery because I don't think that we will ever fully understand what this hour would cost Jesus or the Father. Certainly not this side of heaven. And so we have to recognize at the very beginning and I have to recognize my own limitations that in these things we are merely peering into a room that is dimly lit. We cannot see or understand it with full clarity because parts of these things belong to another world, in a sense, to that spiritual realm that we just are not able to enter into. And so in Gethsemane, we are merely just eavesdropping into Christ. We can just hear him, aren't we? We're privy to the prayer that he prays. And we get to hear of his pain in his prayer and in this way, we are able to see at least some things, I think. And so the aim of this sermon is really to deal with one big question. One big question. And that is, what makes sense of the sorrow of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane? What makes sense of that? And today we will consider four things. They're kind of threads. They're not really points. You kind of have, just have to follow me through it. Uh, follow me through it and hopefully it'll all come together at the end, but... I want us, uh, firstly, so there are four things, but firstly I want us to consider the relationship between Jesus and his Father throughout his earthly life. This might seem like an odd point, but I think we have to understand the cup and the sorrow and the agony of Christ in light of the relationship that he had with the Father. Because suffering is always dependent on the level of relationship that you have, I think. Now we know that Christ depended on the Father for love and for care, and for provision and for protection. Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross, which is his cry of dereliction, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that psalm is all about Christ, really. And the psalm says of the relationship between the Father and of the Son, it says this, and it should be up on the screen, it says, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? I think the son cast upon the father from his birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. 
It is God who warns Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt to protect Jesus' life from Herod in Matthew chapter 2. So we see the Father's protection there and provision and care. Jesus says of the temple when he was a boy that this is my father's house. And God says of him, this is my beloved son. In John 14, it says, don't you believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me? The words that I say, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the father living in me who is doing his work. John chapter 6 says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And I think it is more profoundly captured in John 1, when Jesus says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. I think it is hard to imagine that kind of relational intimacy that Jesus experienced through his earthly life. Psalm 91 talks about how the son has nothing to fear as he grows, as he becomes a man. There's, there's nothing that he has to fear. It says of his earthly life that no disease will claim him, no random events, no terror in the night, no army will take his life because the father cares for him and commands his angels concerning him. It says, Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So just think for a moment that the son has only ever known the most caring and intimate relationship with the father who has loved him perfectly. That is the context, isn't it, leading up to Gethsemane. That is all the son has known. And so this is the first thing that I want us to think upon and we'll come back to it. Now the second thing that I want us to see is that just because the son would rise from the dead, it does not mean that the sacrifice of the son was any easier to bear. I think this is an important point. And I think that if you were to believe that, I think you rob Jesus of his humanity. And I think this point is illustrated for us in the story of Abraham and Isaac that we had for our Bible reading. And the problem in that particular case, is that the book of Hebrews says this. It's not really a problem, but let's have a look at it. Hebrews 11 says this, that by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now, a mistake can be made from this text that assumes that it was easy for Abraham to endure this test from God. And it's actually often preached that way, believe it or not. When God tested Abraham, he does not say to him, take your son and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Otherwise, Abraham, I think, would have taken Ishmael, the son born to his servant woman. But already the text is loaded with emotion because God says to him, take your son, your only son, the son that you love. And I can just imagine that cutting Abraham to the heart. Abraham knew that he would have to forsake his son, the son of the promise, the miracle child, the son who was, is his inheritance. 
The text also says that Abraham was up early in the morning, that he cut his own wood and that he loaded his own donkey. But do you think that he could sleep the night before? Do you think that he needed to cut his own wood or load his own donkey? He was a very powerful man with many servants. He didn't need to do any of those things. I tend to think that Abraham was keeping his hands busy to distract his mind from the pain. And people say, look, look at what he says to his servants. He knew that they would both return. But what was he meant to say? Do you think that just because God would raise Isaac from the dead, that it would have been nothing for Abraham to kill his son? To forsake his son, to consider his son as worthy of death? You see how we can quickly take away the emotion of the text just because of the theology. We can quickly rob men of their humanity. And I think we do that with Jesus in Gethsemane quite often. And without Gethsemane, we might think too that the atonement was easy for the son and the father. And so I'm thankful for the text that it doesn't allow us to think that way. Now, I think we have to conclude in light of these things that the pain for Christ, the sorrow and the agony for Christ must be at least in part because, of the, because the relationship that he has with the Father of perfect love and care and provision was about to change. And I think that's the point of Gethsemane, isn't it? That something is changing. Something is beginning. Something is taking place. And we know that it changes because only in Gethsemane can wicked, sinful men lay claim to him? Can they touch him? Can they capture him? They haven't been able to do this before. Every time they have tried to get him, Christ has slipped away somehow under the care and the, prov and the provision and the protection of his father. But here in Gethsemane, we have to notice that that changes when he is arrested. We have to notice that. And the fact that he would rise from the dead does not rob him of his pain. It does not make it an easy thing for the father to give up his only son. Jesus says in Gethsemane, he says, the hour has come. So we have to recognize that something begins there. And I think more importantly, uh, or to add more clarity, Jesus says in Luke's account of Gethsemane, he says this in, in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, when he is arrested... Now, by these men, he says, Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. It begins there at Gethsemane. Something begins. I'm not saying the atonement takes place. It takes place at the cross, but there is a shift there. There is something which Jesus anticipates in his prayer that begins there in the garden, in the dark of night, when the hour would come where darkness would reign. In our passage that we read after Peter cuts off Malchus's ear and Jesus heals it, he says, Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And we see that the son is going willingly. It's not simply that the father is there giving him up, but the son is willingly going. The son is entering into the storm. But I think the very fact that sinful men are able to touch the son and claim him and arrest him means that the father is restraining himself in some way. There with the angels. The father is possibly beginning to withdraw from the son. And this is something that Jesus has never known. I can't imagine the grief and the hurt and the pain 
Thirdly, I'd like for us to think on the cup. The cup is clearly linked with the agony of Christ because it is the focus of his prayer, isn't it? It's the sort of substance of it. But I'm hoping that so far I have shown that the cup shouldn't be thought of apart from the relationship that Jesus has with his Father. Now the cup in the scriptures is a symbol of God's judgment and God's wrath. Jeremiah 25 says this, Isaiah 51, Lamentations 4, Ezekiel 23, Habakkuk 2, and so on. It's very clearly that. Every now and then, for instance in the Psalms, it is a symbol of God's salvation. But Jesus' agony over it tells us that it is one and not the other. The cup cannot merely be his physical death and pain. It must be more to make sense of the agony. Some people have said the cup is, is just what he is going to experience physically and his death. But I don't believe that and I don't think the text allows us to think that. Uh, the scholar Don Carson says on this point, he says, we must ask why this Jesus who for so long calmly faced the prospect of his death should now seem to be less courageous than the Maccabean martyrs or the many thousands of his disciples who have faced martyrdom with great courage. And so you see the cup must be, must be much more than just his physical pain and his death. I think it is explained this way for a particular reason. I think because people don't want to see God or don't want to see the Father as, as active in the atonement. They want to see him as passive. He kind of brings the Son to that point and lets him go out. And the atonement is just about evil men having their way with the Son. But, but we, cannot, uh, we cannot conclude that, that the Father is passive in that way. We have to say that God is active in the atonement, God is not simply a bystander sitting back and letting sinful men have their way. And only if God is active in the atonement, I think, can we make sense of the sorrow of Christ in the garden. And so we see that uh, it is much more, especially with Jesus' prayer and agony and the appeal to the cup and then darkness coming over the cross for three hours, representing the judgment of God falling upon the sun. And you see, not only will the Father withdraw protection from Christ, but he will count him as one of us. That's what is taking place, isn't it? That's the great, that's the great uh, truth of the gospel, that Christ functions as our substitute, that he is clothed in my sin, in your sin. Our sin is what nails him to that tree, and by faith we get his perfect righteous life. That's the beautiful story of the gospel. And so God counts Jesus as one of us, as a sinful man. And it is not only forsakenness, then it is also judgment. We have to hold both of those up in the atonement. When and how, though, does it all take place? There is mystery there, I think, for us. But we know that it is representative, represented by the cup and the darkness and I think it must be thought of once again in light of the relationship that Jesus has with his father. I think to forsake a person that you don't know would be hard. And to forsake a friend would be much harder. But to hand over a son to death, though he is innocent, and then to punish him as a guilty man, though he had only ever known perfect love, would be for anybody else, I think, a cup of sorrow and pain too great to bear. But that is what the Son bears for us. 
there is one danger here that I want to just bring up just briefly. And that is that we must never say that when the Son is separated from the Father, if that is how it is said, that there was a fracturing between the divine nature of the Godhead. We must never say that. When Jesus takes our place and is judged, he never ceases to be God. And so we must be careful, I think, when we talk about the atonement. There is judgment taking place, but it is God himself in his entirety that participates in the atonement, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I think the other danger that I've already mentioned is that we cannot make the Father a passive agent in the atonement when he is not. And the final point that I want us to think on, uh, the final thing to meditate on is the forsakenness of Christ. We see it most clearly in the cry of dereliction, don't we? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. it says, About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we know for certain that he was forsaken. And as I mentioned before, these words are from Psalm 22, which is about wicked men who devour the son, who accuse him. Uh, who eventually kill him. And I think these words that Jesus cries out speak of all of that. Speak of uh, all of that, that the Son is being forsaken. And so it is both, I think. There's both elements that we must uphold. Jesus must be a propitiation. He must deal with the wrath of God. He must come under judgment. But he must also pay the wages of sin, which is death. And I think on the cross, the only way for death to be allowed to swallow the Son, to triumph over him, is if the Father is seeing him in our place, as if the Father is seeing him as a sinful man. And so just before death is able to overcome the Son, he cries out those words. And he did it all as the greatest display of love that the world would ever know. And he did it to save the very ones who nailed him to that tree. And it was your sin, and it was my sin that nailed him there it is no wonder then that the son would sweat drops of blood in the garden of gethsemane as recorded in the other accounts that he would fall with his face to the ground in such agony that he could die it is no wonder that an angel has to come into the garden to strengthen him for the storm that lies ahead it is no wonder that the son cries out in his humanity father if there is another way let it be so let it be so and if we're going to pull all these things together, I think we have to consider Gethsemane in light of the fact that Christ had only ever known this beautiful, intimate relationship with the Father. And I would say that what is happening at Gethsemane is what is indicated to us by the Scriptures is that that is about to change. The Son is about to be pushed out and cast out and the, the Father will judge him and death will overcome him. He will be stricken and afflicted and struck down that he might bring life to all of those who call on his name. And the answer to his prayer, is there another way, is no. Ultimately, there is no other way. I think one thing we can, as we finish, one thing that we can think on is what does this tell us about the love of God and the horrific nature of our sin? That this was the only way, that this was the cost for your salvation. I think the old hymn captures it well. There were 99 that safely lay. And I'll close with this. There were 99 that safely lay in the shelter of the flock. Lord, thou hast here thy 99. Are they not enough for thee? 
But the shepherd made an answer, This one of mine has wandered away from me. And although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night which the Lord passed through when he found his sheep that was lost. Lord, from where are those blood drops all that mark out the mountain's track? They were shed for the one who had gone astray. Only the shepherd could bring him back. And all through the mountains, thunder ravine, and up from the rocky steep, there arose a cry to the gate of heaven, Rejoice, I have found my sheep. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, you are an incredibly good and just and merciful God. You are so kind to us that you, God, would send your Son that he would take our place. We thank you, Christ, that you were willing, that you set your face toward Jerusalem as you came into that city, uh, Lord, knowing that you would face judgment, Lord, that you would be abandoned, that you would be forsaken, that the relationship would shift, Lord, that you would go into this storm, that you would go into the storm all alone. Uh, Help us as we come to Easter, Lord, please prepare our hearts. Help us to remember this great love and let us let it motivate us to share your goodness and your grace with others around us. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.